Well, Father, thank you for our standing in Christ and that we can stand forgiven before you. We acknowledge our dirtiness as a people and we recognize our proneness to wander, our love for ourselves and our love for the old ways. But thank you for your grace and your mercy. And thank you for the newness of life that you bring in Christ. And Lord, would you help us to walk in obedience. Thank you for this time now that we value so much and we build into our week of opening our Bibles and hearing a message from you. Lord, may I be out of the way and may you speak only through me. And may it be clearly um, a message from you, from your word that challenges our hearts and that your Holy Spirit uses well today to strengthen us in our walk with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Once again this week, I want us to turn to the New Testament to uh, illustrate the principle that we want to discuss in the Old Testament, and I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 14 for an incident there. I was thinking uh, about moments in time that it would be great to have been there to observe. I was thinking um, uh, times like um, uh, when the Wright brothers finally got that crate off the ground. Wouldn't have been great to be there. Wow, look at that. And uh, I was thinking uh, maybe when Alexander Graham Bell said, Mr. Watson, come here. And they could hear it through that line, through a cord. How could sound go through a wire? That's amazing. Maybe to be hidden up in the bushes somewhere on a high point and watch Pickett's charge unfold in all of its horror before you. Moments in time that it would be something to be there, wouldn't it? And I think, in a way, even though it's relatively simple, that this moment in time in our New Testament would be one of the biblical moments that it would be kind of fun to have been an observer close up. I mean, there are many of those moments in our Bibles, aren't there? Every boy wished he was there to see David whap Goliath. But um, uh, this moment is... A great moment, an outstanding moment of spiritual faith and failure all wrapped in one. You know the moment pretty well. Our Lord Jesus had sent his disciples on ahead across the lake in their boat. He had wanted some time alone. And then it says, beginning in Matthew chapter 14, verse 25, that it was during the fourth watch of the night that Jesus went out to them. And that's the wee hours of the morning, the darkness of night. He went out to them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter said, tell me to come to you on the water. Don't you wonder where in the world did that thought come from? I mean, Peter was a fisherman, right? Peter had grown up around the boats and on the lake and on the sea, fishing. He understood well. What do men not do when it's not frozen? Walk on water. And there they were. They were afraid in the darkness of night. We know in a moment that there was a wind and a storm and a little bit of uh, topsy-turvy rough waters going on. And there's our Lord Don't be afraid, he said. It's me. What a moment. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you. Now, why didn't you just go? The Lord Jesus says, come, Peter, come. Oh, Peter, you know, 
Think about it. What did that feel like? I mean, what, I mean, all the other guys in the boat, what are they thinking? I wish I'd have thought to get out of the boat. I'd like to walk on water. I wonder if Peter ever told his grandkids about this moment. If he did, I wonder if he told them about what happened next. Look what it says. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Notice what Jesus does. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Notice his words. You of little faith. Peter, why did you doubt? Could have been a great moment, Peter. Could have been something to write in your journal. Could have been something to tell your grandkids about. And now, it's a failure moment. You identify with this? The Lord has spoken. He's present. I want his power in my life. I'm going to step out on the boat a little bit. But then what do I do? I define the moment by the circumstances around me rather than my focus on my Lord Jesus and what happens. Down you go. Start watching the wind. I assume that means the results of the wind. And he sees the results of what the wind and he feels it blowing. And he becomes afraid right in the presence of his Lord. Well, that's the sense that we have this morning once again as we finish the passage that we started into last week in Genesis chapter 18. And I invite you to turn there with me, please. Genesis chapter 18. I trust that you'll make it a priority to be present in the services. The next few weeks, there's some, just some powerful messages coming through these texts that God has recorded in his, these historical accounts and they are just as relevant to our church and our community and our country as, as the daily headlines. As we finish chapter 18 next week, move into chapter 19, these warning passages, they're weighty matters. And you pray uh, that God will use these messages and pray for me as I prepare them, as I know many of you do. Well, last week when we started into uh, Genesis chapter 18... We got uh, distracted a little bit on a sidebar there, and uh, I hope that you found that helpful as we found Abraham seated in front of his tent, resting in the heat of the day. He looks up, and these three visitors have come. We know from the text that one of them was the Lord, who had come to speak with him. And in a sense, they, and they end up having this great meal that Abraham and Sarah prepare for them. And it was sort of like a confirmation meal, a follow-up uh, uh, from the covenant, a covenant meal, so to speak. Shortly before this, in chapter 17, not, not many days before this, um, is when God had come and affirmed his promise to Abraham, told him once again, one year from now, Sarah's going to have a baby boy. His name's going to be Isaac. Through him is the promise of the covenant, the blessing to the world. Through him, kings will come. Uh, namely the Lord Jesus himself. And your people will be a blessing to all people everywhere. And uh, Abraham believed. But we find in our passage that Sarah didn't. Well, the first thing we found in the passage was this example of Abraham's generous hospitality. Remember last week? And there were five things that Abraham did for his guests that, that set a standard and, and reminded us of some things. 
that we're to be hospitable people as well. And we found that it was even commanded in the New Testament, this dynamic of hospitality, this Christian grace or virtue of hospitality. And I hope you found that encouraging and a little bit helpful. And uh, we find two more themes now that are going to come through in this passage. Along with Abraham's generous hospitality, we then switch to Sarah's moment of the obvious impossibility, where Sarah is hung up on the circumstances and she has this obvious impossibility in her life that she has to deal with. But we wrap up the chapter with the third uh, character that comes in from Abraham to Sarah to God's limitless capacity, his limitless ability to fulfill his word. And therein, Sarah should find her strength. Well, let's dig in a little bit and let's take a look. Let's begin by reading to shorten our time a little bit. Let's just pick it up with uh, verse 6. Abraham hurries to the tent. You can see there. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three siyas of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd, selected a choice tender calf and gave it to the servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk in the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. And while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. And then the Lord speaks. Where is Sarah? Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. Uh, There in the tent, he said. And then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old. We know from previous verses that Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90 years of age. And they were well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? And then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah was afraid, so she lied, and she said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. We'll stop there. Well, let's break it down as we think about Sarah's focus on the circumstances. Sarah processing in all of her humanity, trying to define a reality about herself and what God is going to do. And her conclusion is that it's all an obvious impossibility. The first thing we see about Sarah is that she sat there and she listened. She listened. Look at verse 10. And then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent. What we have here is we have uh, a dual dynamic. We have a cultural dynamic and we have a woman dynamic. We have culturally the inappropriateness of a wife while her husband is entertaining male guests of being present. And it would have been inappropriate in this Eastern culture. And and I think that it's somewhat that way even today in some of these Eastern cultures. The, The husband is entertaining unknown male guests. The women disappear out of sight. They're Bedouin, in essence. They live in tents. And so you know if you camped at all that tents aren't very soundproof. And so then her... Her curiosity kicks in and she just gets around the backside of the flap of the tent there and she wants to listen in, hear what these guys have to say a little bit. And the first thing we have is that Sarah listened. 
And she hears what no doubt she's been hearing her husband Abraham say to her. On four different occasions, the Lord has told him, and now he's telling her, Sarah, Sarah, we're going to have a baby. Yeah, right. Sarah, you're going to be the princess of the world, and you're going to have this child of laughter, and he's going to bring joy to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's listening, but evidently Sarah's having an awfully hard time believing. Abraham believed, remember, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. He knew. We know that Sarah knew there was something that God had promised about a people and a place. And we know that 13 years before, she had taken her handmade Hagar and given her to Abram, her husband, and said, marry her. Maybe God will give you this nation of people through this son. I'm too old. That was 13 years before this. The second thing we have to believe that Sarah did after, as she was listening, not only did she listen, but notice in verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. Sarah, sitting behind the flap of her tent, listening, hears from this personification of the Lord himself present in her husband's tent, saying, one year from now, I'm going to come back. It's just exactly what Abraham was just told in chapter 17 at the time of the covenant. And Sarah, your wife, will have conceived and will have a baby. But the second thing Sarah had to have done then is she looked. She looked at herself, didn't she? She listened, she heard, but then she looked. And then she began to define her own reality. Look at me. I am a shriveled up old woman. I am beyond childbearing years. And when she looked at the circumstances, I don't know if she had a mirror, she knew what she looked like. She knew who she was. And she knew that just like Peter knew, men don't walk on water, old ladies don't have babies. That's the way it is. You can say whatever you want, Lord. But I'm telling you, I know me. I know what condition I'm in. In. I know the circumstances of my life, and this just isn't going to happen. You ever find yourself there? You ever find yourself looking around? You have listened to the Lord speak, but then you look around, don't you? You look around and you say, yeah, Lord, but. Yeah, Lord, but. Lord, you don't understand how hard the heart of this man in my life is. You said you can... You can break the hardest heart, but you don't know about this guy's heart. What are you saying? You don't know? Lord, this adult child of mine has broken my heart for the 39th time. They've fallen off the wagon for the 40th time. And Lord, they're never going to change. You ever look at the Lord and doubt His promises because of the condition and defining your circumstances and adjusting His promises based upon the circumstances around you. We do it all the time, don't we? Say, Lord, Lord, You promised that You would clothe me. You promised that You would feed me like the little sparrows out there, even in wintertime, picking their crumbs and seeds. 
But Lord, you don't know how empty this checkbook is. Lord, you don't know that there is nothing. You talk about the widow's flour and oil in Elijah's life being down to nothing. This checkbook's beyond empty. There's nothing there. Oh, I promised to take care of you, but because your checkbook's empty, it isn't going to happen? No, see, we define and we adjust our mindset of faith based upon what our understanding of reality is, and that's what Sarah's doing. She listened to God, but then she looked at the realities of her life, and she says, this is a joke. This is a joke, and that's the third thing she does. She laughs. She laughs. Look at verse 12. After I'm worn out and my master is old, will I now have pleasure? Sarah laughed to herself as she thought these things. Evidently, it wasn't out loud, and she laughs because, yeah, right, this is a joke. This is just make-believe or something. But then notice, sadly, she lies after that. She listened, she looked, she laughed, and then she lies. The Lord, defining himself here now by his omniscience, his all-knowingness, says, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. Maybe technically she didn't laugh. Maybe it never got out loud. But isn't that interesting that the Lord, as he spoke with Abraham there in the entrance to the tent, he knows exactly what she's thinking. And he says, why did Sarah laugh? Why did Sarah laugh? I'll tell you why I laughed. Because it'll never happen, that's why. Why is it that Sarah was so filled with doubt? Why is it that it's so difficult for us? Having the promises of God, having the testimony of his faithfulness, and yet in the everyday realities of our lives, we so easily take our eyes off of him. And rather than walk by faith, we walk by sight, don't we? Can I suggest three reasons why Sarah doubted? This one I've already, number one, I've already inferred in, in the passages as we've looked, as she looked at herself and laughed. But number one is because she doubted because this was beyond human capability. It was beyond human capability. How often do we define our faith in God based upon our own personal resources, our own abilities? It works like this. Maybe there's a situation... Uh, I guess the thing that comes to my mind is um, this used to be more common than it is now, although churches still do it. They'll have a faith promise Sunday for world missions. You ever heard of that? Churches will do that and, and they will challenge their people. Here's the needs around the world. We have all these missionaries and we want to challenge you by faith to give this year to our missions fund so that we can give more than we've ever given to world missions for the cause of the gospel to go around the world. That's a great purpose, right? And so the pastor's up front and he's hammering away trying to get you to give by faith. And you think like this. Yeah, how much can I give? I know I ought to give to world missions and I want to give by faith. And I know what our budget is and I know I don't have very much money. Oh, yeah. But I'm pretty sure Aunt Matilda's going to die next September, probably around the fall. She's not going to be around much longer. And I'm going to get like $10,000 from her. 
And you know what? I could tie that, so that's $1,000. And then, let's see, um, I've, got, um, I've got a couple lawns that I'm going to do, and I can do this, and I can do that, and I can adjust, and I think I can do that. I think that I can give this much. And it kind of stretches you, and you know that you're going to kind of feel it when you write the checks. So it's by faith. Listen, if you can figure it out, it's not faith. Do you know that? That's not faith. That's you, that's you working your strategy. Faith is doing what God called you to do when the outcome is unknown to you. It's easy to get down on Sarah. It's easy to say, oh, why didn't she just believe like Abraham? It's the reason that Abraham is elevated so much in Israel's history, in Romans and in Hebrews of our New Testament, held up as the model of faith. Imagine this man. He really believed Sarah was going to have the baby. It was a done deal to him. And he knew God would do it. And man, we've got another great story of faith for Abraham coming up that, even, that, that I think surpasses all of these. And that's when he's got his knife up on ready to kill this boy that God finally gives him. Believing that God would raise him from the dead. That's some kind of faith. Because when you stick a knife in the heart and chest of your 12-year-old boy, he's dead. That's what my experience tells me. Not that I've ever stuck my 12-year-old boy, but... <laughs> Just the reality of a knife going in somebody's chest. You understand what I'm saying? That's Abraham. Man, he's like way out in front. Sarah's like standing in front of the mirror saying, this is humanly impossible. Therefore, I don't really get it. Listen, when you are stuck in the mode of what is humanly possible, you are not living in the realm of faith. And let me say that I am not a proponent, or am I espousing any kind of a, a prosperity gospel here or any kind of a name-it-claim-it kind of faith that is heretical and it's wrong? And if you're ever in a church where a preacher's preaching like that or you're watching it on television where he's saying that you, you don't have the money that God wants you to have because you don't have enough faith, get up and walk out. Amen. It's a bunch of nonsense. You don't name and claim anything to God. God might call you to go live in a tent somewhere in poverty and have worms crawling underneath your, your skin. There, there, there's all kinds of factors here. You might be exactly where God wants you to be, sticking with your minimum wage job somewhere, just making ends meet, but you're exactly where God wants you, and he's blessing your life. Just because you don't have money in the bank. Now, if you're digging your own financial negative hole, you ought to knock it off. You stop digging so you don't go deeper. All right? That's a different factor. But this is not, this living by faith is not a name it, claim it. Uh, God wants to open the storehouses of heaven. God, is whole, God has a whole storehouse for you. And if you just, you just have faith, he'll pour it down on you. And let me tell you, I, had, I used to only have one jet. Now I've got three jets. I used to not have a home on the beach. Now I have three homes on the beach. And it all started because God called me to give my, cast my bread upon the water. And the preachers go on and on and it makes you sick has nothing to do with faith. It has everything to do with them trying to get you to give money to them so they can buy their jet fuel. That's what it is. It's utter nonsense. Don't be deceived by that stuff. It's horrible. It's an atrocity. It's the kind of people that our Lord Jesus would go up front and tip over the tables and throw down their microphones and kick them out of the church. What I'm talking about, though, is when when God has given us clear and precious promises right here in his word, and then we look at our circumstances and we say, no, I can't do it. I can't stay in this marriage anymore because I just can't do it. Yeah, you can. You can do everything through Christ who gives you strength. That's where faith comes in. 
just because you're not having fun anymore. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't give you the strength to keep walking. It's always right to do right, and sometimes you have to do right by faith. Sarah doubted and laughed at God because it was beyond human capability. And we so often live inside of the box of what is feasible to us, defining our realities by our capacity to accomplish it. Secondly, I think it's significant in Sarah's case that she laughed and she doubted God because this was a lifelong negativity in her life. Do you realize how long Sarah had been defined by her barrenness? Do you realize that the stigma of this dear woman's life was she had no children? To the degree that she was willing, and it had to have screamed against everything in her inner being, she was willing to give a young girl to her husband to be his wife in her place. That's how much she wanted a child in her home, she thought. You see, her whole life it had been this way, and now you're going to tell her in her old age it's going to change? Isn't it amazing? The things that dominate us, that are out of our control. She could do nothing about it, and yet her whole life, this had been her, dwell, this had been her mindset. Her whole life, every waking hour, I'll bet you she thought about her barrenness. The weariness of her soul, the weightiness of her heart was, I have no child, I have no child. Sarah, you can't do anything about that. You need to live inside of what God's plan of blessing for your life is. And sometimes it's a deferred hope, isn't it? That, that we have to fight a broken heart. The Lord, Lord never gave me what I thought he was going to give me. And it's no wonder that Sarah had a difficult time grasping the reality of what was going to happen in her life because of this lifelong stigma. I mean, for us, it kind of works like this. I've kind of re referenced it already a little bit. It would be like, Lord, I have been praying for this guy for 47 years. And he's worse off now than he was at the beginning. And that's when you have to listen and the Lord says, can you change him? No, I can't change him. Can the leopard change his spots? No, you can't change him. Can I change him? Yes. Well, then you keep trusting me and you keep praying. It's my job to bring the change. Lord, and on it goes, doesn't it? Lord, I don't want it to be this way. Listen, if it's outside of the realm of your control, that's where your faith has to come in and you keep trusting the promises of God, but they are difficult sometimes when it's been decades. Decades. I remember when my Uncle Bob got saved. My dad, had, my dad always said he had, seven, he had seven brothers, and all, of his, all seven brothers had seven brothers. So you think about that. But each of his seven brothers had seven brothers. There were eight boys in the family. And one of the oldest ones was Bob, and he was, he was a hard-hearted sinner. I remember when I was a little boy being amazed how big my Uncle Bob's belly was. And that's how I learned what a beer belly was. I didn't know there was such a thing as a beer belly. And every night after work, my Uncle Bob would go to the bar up in northern Wisconsin. And do you know, do you know that every Saturday morning at family devotions at my house and often at the supper table, I can hear in my mind right now my dad's voice praying, 
for Bob's. He always said, it's for Bob's. That meant Bob's whole family, for Bob and his whole family. Lord, I pray for Elroy's. I pray for Bob's. I pray, pray down and pray for Orville's. He put an S on the end of their names, and we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed. Do you know that my Uncle Bob was like 74 years old when he finally got saved? And, and he had been prayed for hard ever since he was laying on his belly in, in the islands of the South Pacific with Japanese shooting at him in World War II when he was 19 years old. He's like 74 years old. And then they would come, and I ended up, I was an adult then, and I remember him coming up to our house, and, and my Aunt Rose could play the piano a little bit, and my mom could play the piano. You want to hear precious squackings. It was my Uncle Bob, still had his big belly, and my Aunt Rose at the piano, and my mom, and they would sing hymns out of the hymnal. And they reveled in the grace of our Lord Jesus and their salvation in their mid and late 70s. I'll tell you who is never going to get saved. Bob Fleming would never get saved. Of all the people who will never get saved, he'll never get saved. You see, this lifelong course, third reason I think that Sarah doubted, and this is maybe the most significant point. These are not in the text. These are observations, just as I've thought about Sarah. Number one, she laughed and she doubted because it was beyond human capability. Number two, it was an area of lifelong negativity. Number three, it was her low view of God's sovereignty. Her low view of God's sovereignty. Who's really in control? You know, there's an, we won't turn there now, but it's Jeremiah chapter 18, and there's a great picture there. The, the Lord was at work in the life of the prophet Jeremiah, and he had a lesson to teach him about what he was going to do through, to his people Israel in judging them. But he wanted to teach Jeremiah, his man of the hour, his prophet, a lesson. And he said, Jeremiah, get up and go down to the potter's house. Remember that? Jeremiah, get up and go down to the potter's house. And there he went. And you can picture this from HGTV or something. You know, you go in there and they've got the artisan going and the wheel's spinning, all right? They're spinning and they've got the wet clay and they're molding it. And as it spins, they're shaping it. And they're, they remember, you know, their hands are kind of have half dry and half wet clay and they're dipping their fingers in water and they're shaping it. And Jeremiah is standing there watching the potter shape the clay into a vase. And all of a sudden, the potter does what? Grabs the whole thing and does this. What are you doing? You just messed it up. You just messed it up. I didn't mess it up. I'm going to fix it. I want to start over on this one. And what you don't have is you don't have the clay say, you don't have the clay say to the potter, why did you do that to me? <laughs> doesn't happen, does it? Because why? The clay doesn't speak to the potter and the potter rules over the clay. Listen. We've got to get to where our faith is strong because we serve a sovereign God. And as he molds and as he makes us and as he forms us, and he is in control, isn't he? And what a great God he is. Holds the nations in his hand. The stars are like nothing to him and he knows them all by name. He's totally in control. He's trustworthy. And that reminds us of our third point so that we can get it and go home and watch the Redskins lose. 
Is it bye week? That's how much I'm paying attention to him right now. But thank you for that bit of information. We'll go home and watch the Giants lose. What's the difference? Okay, so. We have Sarah's obvious impossibility, don't we? Sarah's obvious impossibility, but what do we have? We have, as we conclude the final theme, we move to our third character, and it's God. God's limitless capability. There's the rhetorical question in verse 14. Did you see it? The rhetorical question, the Lord says, in response to Sarah's, will I really have a child in my old age? And the Lord says, is anything too hard for God? What's he saying? Is he wondering to himself, maybe I can't quite pull this one off. Maybe this is tough even for me. No, it's a rhetorical question. It is asking the question so that the subject listening has to process the answer to the question and say it to themselves, and the answer is no. There's nothing too hard for God. Therefore, God is believable. Therefore, I will walk by faith, and I will accept what he's called me to, and I will do what he has said. Listen, if God has spoken, don't doubt it. Don't allow your life experiences to define the limits of your faith. We do that so much, don't we? We need the character, the attributes of a sovereign Lord to, divine, to define the limits of our faith, don't we? Is anything too hard for God? No. Let me ask the question and you answer it. Ready? Is anything too hard for God? No. Let's pray. Father, we admit that we are so easily distracted by the circumstances of our lives. And, and Lord, sometimes we become burdened down by things that are way beyond the realm of our control. And we even define our faith by the circumstances around us, like Peter and like Sarah. Help us to be more like Abraham, Lord. You've spoken, and we don't know how it's going to happen, but we're going to believe it. And we know you can do it. Father, would you encourage the hearts of parents here with adult children frozen in addictions and far from you today? Father, for the wife who's here today and her husband is hard of heart and he's far from you and he doesn't love her anymore, may she keep walking by faith. Father, for the person who's just under it financially, doesn't know where to turn, May they not doubt your provision. May they not doubt your plan of blessing. Lord, for the young person here who is so infatuated by the world around them and they think that it's the wicked who really have it at ease and their feet are ready to slip, would you please renew their hope and their faith in you and in the significance and the trustworthy and the reliability of your word. Help us, Lord, to grow our faith, knowing that if we can figure it out, it's not really faith. Help us to just walk in humble obedience to your word and in reliance upon your promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.